We are in the second division of Luke, which is Roman numeral number two. This is the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. This is chapter four, verses fourteen. Chapter four, verse fourteen through chapter nine, verse fifty. So this is the first major section, or first major division, the where we're doing a geographical ministry. Remember, so we talked about how. Luke is divided into three different major sections. And the first one is his ministry in Galilee. The second one is his journey to Jerusalem. And the third is in Jerusalem. So this is the Galilee ministry where he makes himself known. He has been baptized. He has been tempted and tested in the wilderness. And now he's ready to make himself public and known to the people of Israel. So this division is largely shaped by the servant of Yahweh passage from Isaiah chapter 42, 16 through 21. And there are six major servants of Yahweh passages in Isaiah that talk about a being, a Messiah, that will come and serve Yahweh. And this is going to be read by Jesus in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21. So he's going to go back to his hometown, Nazareth. He's going to read from the servant passage, Isaiah 42, 16 through 21. And this is not only going to shape this division, what is being said in Isaiah, but it's pretty much the foundation and the theme for all of the Gospel of Luke. So this reading from Isaiah is extremely important for understanding this division and all of Luke. Luke connects the empowering of Jesus more with his prayer than with the sin of the Holy Spirit, like Matthew and Mark do. And Luke emphasizes the prayer life of Jesus. So we've seen the Holy Spirit very much emphasized in the first division of this announcement and um, birth and now call to ministry. But now Luke is going to begin to shift into the prayer life of Christ, that what allows him to be tapped into the Holy Spirit, what allows him to be guided by God is his prayer life. And this is going to be emphasized big time. Whereas the birth narrative laid out the what we might expect of Yahweh's visitation, this division explains how Yahweh's purposes will be achieved. So this is how it's going to happen. First, Luke provides a more definitive outworking of Jesus as the Son of God and his empowerment through a public ministry. So we're not going to just see the fact that he is declared the Son of God, and he's proven himself worthy of that title by resisting the temptation. But we're now actually going to see what it actually means for him to act like in words and deed as the Son of God. Luke reveals the diabolical forces that are against the outworking of this ministry and Jesus' uh, working of the ministry of Jesus through the demonic possession, sickness, and human opposition. This is juxtaposed to the idea that Jesus, as Yahweh's agent, is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. So Luke is really going to emphasize spiritual warfare big time in his gospel. That on one side, the demonic forces are opposing him, and that this is the real power behind the Pharisees, and Caesar Augustus, and Herod, and Pilate, and Caiaphas, and Annas. But juxtaposed to this is that Christ is inspired or empowered by the Holy Spirit. And this is the spiritual warfare we're going to see. So in this first division, the first section we're going to be getting into is the overview of Jesus' ministry, chapters 4, 14 through 44. 
So this is going to be a simple summary and overview of what his ministry entails, what it's like, and it's going to be launched by the Isaiah 42 passage. This is going to be demonstrated by the fact that the activity of Jesus is done through obedience and the empowerment of Yahweh. What it allows him to be successful is his obedience to Yahweh, which then brings the empowerment of Yahweh. This is first seen in Jesus' ministry as the empowered by the Holy Spirit. So we're going to see that over and over again. Second, the inseparability of the teaching and miracles is the basis of Jesus' ministry. So he is going to teach amazing words of authority, amazing insights into Scripture. And people are going to be wowed by his insights, which is, comes from the Spirit of God that we saw in him as a boy in the temple. But it's also his miraculous deeds that has been seen by nobody, not to the extent that he does it, is going to validate his words and his teachings. Third, Luke is Luke four chapter or forty Luke chapter four verse forty three establishes the need for Jesus to move around Israel proclaiming the good news in order to grow the new community of Yahweh. And fourth, Luke highlights the importance of the response to Jesus' ministry, whether positive or negative. So this is the overview we're going to see, the teachings and the miracles of Christ, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, his moving around the Galilee, and the, the reaction that Israel gives both positive and negative. So these are the four major highlights of this section. So chapter 4, verse 14. Then Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, just like the Spirit that came down upon him in the baptism and led him into the wilderness, and took care of him, is now bringing the Galilee, returned to Galilee, and the news about him spread throughout the surrounding countryside. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by all. Now remember, synagogue is their version of a church. It's where they, they can't, they, it's not possible to travel to the temple every single Saturday for Sabbath and worship God. The mileage is just too extreme. They built these synagogues. So as Israel was scattered out of the land, the promised land, during the exile, they began to set up alternate forms of worship because the temple had been destroyed. And so these were called synagogues. And they were basically a, a stone building, and the men would sit on one side, and the women would sit on the other side, and then there would be a Levitical priest who would do the teaching, and they would read from a section from the Torah, a section from the prophets, and usually a section from the Psalms, and then somebody would teach and they would, they would follow the script. So it, was, it wasn't just what they picked. They would just read through the Bible in these sections. These synagogues were their local gatherings or local centers of worship. And the news of him began to spread as he began to teach in many of these. And Nazareth, he's going to teach in one of these on this day. Now Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. As was the custom, he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. So before we get into the reading, we describe what a system of the synagogue was kind of like. He's invited to read. He's obviously seen as a respected teacher at this time, a respected rabbi, which means teacher, because he's actually being invited to read here. He would be in a standing position. So he'd begin a scroll, and there would be a reading that he would be required. It doesn't matter who was reading. It doesn't matter what you wanted to do. There was a daily, a required, a required reading that they would do. 
there would be a standing position, he would read one to three verses units. And this passage would be translated into Aramaic. So they read from Hebrew, and because of the vast majority of people, many that all the Jews could um, speak Aramaic. Aramaic was the the language of the ancient world. It was a combination of like uh, Akkadian like language and the Farsi that the Persian Empire spoke. And the Persian Empire ruled for a very long time, and the Greeks came along. So the, the language that the Jews learned from the exile was Aramaic. So that was the language that they would speak. They also would speak Greek because that was the business language of the ancient world. Aramaic was the old school language. Kind of the equivalent of today is English is like the business language and the language of the, the world, and it dominates trade and business and all that kind of stuff. But eventually we're going to be moving into Mandarin as the Chinese begin to dominate the economy and overtake America. And um, no joke, <laughs> um, China and Russia just made a deal to oppose America in every single way that they can in the business world. So, so and they threw off the American dollar bill, which no country has ever done that since World War II. So they're becoming the power. Eventually, you're going to need to know English and Mandarin if you're going to want to actually like do anything in the world. And so that's kind of what Aramaic and Greek is. Aramaic is the old dominant language, and Greek is the new dominant language. And so everybody knew those. People could probably read Hebrew, but they, if they were literate, they're very few, like the Jewish men, but they wouldn't be able necessarily be able to um, speak Hebrew necessarily. So a lot of people, especially the women, wouldn't really be able to understand Hebrew a lot. And so they would often translate that for the people that couldn't. Now, a lot of people could, but a lot of people couldn't, so be translated into Aramaic. And of course, everybody would know a little bit of Latin because the Romans were ruling. And some would know it all, but some would know Latin. And everybody would at least know, like, where's the bathroom? Please don't crucify me in Latin. So they would, they would know these kind of things. So um, it's like the old joke. What do you call somebody who can only speak one language? An American. So these illiterate, poor, backwards fishermen of Judaism and Israel actually knew more languages than we do. With maybe a few exceptions. So they would translate this for the audience, and then an invitation for someone to instruct would be given. So, and, and usually, someone, it couldn't be just like Jimmy Joe Jew off the street was like, I want to say something. Like, it would have to be approved by the elders and that kind of stuff. And so anybody that was respected by the community, and as long as 10 elders were there to preside over it, to like, you know, give them the, the shepherd's crook hook and pull them off the stage if they're saying something heretical, um, would be there as well. This could be done by any qualified male, as long as there was 10 other males there, elders. And once the reading was done, the person would sit down in the seat, instruction, and begin to teach. So they would stand and read the Word of God, and then they would sit and give instruction, which is kind of contrary to what we do. And then they would sit in the seat of Moses when they did this, and that's what they would instruct for. Jesus is given the scroll, and it just happens to arrive at Isaiah 42, which just happens to be a passage that is very much about who he is and what his ministry is going to do. There is a reason why God is bringing him to the synagogue on this day. And he reads Isaiah 42, 16 through 21, and it says this, The Spirit of Yahweh is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the release to the captives, and the regaining of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor, or the year of Jubilee. 
And this is the passage that he reads. So this citation comes from Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, and probably also Isaiah 58 and 6. Jesus' reading makes two changes to the original text, and he has every right to change the original text because he is the word. First, Jesus omits the last part of Isaiah 61, 2, the day of vengeance of our God. So the very end of this reading actually would lend like, and the vengeance of our God is here. He probably eliminated this to remove the negative connotation from Isaiah's passage for this particular connection in Jesus' ministry. Now, John the baptizer has made it very clear that the axe is at the tree, and it's ready to cut them down if they reject them. But that's not where they are yet. And Jesus probably does not want to continue that ministry of wrath and judgment of God that Elijah or um, John the baptizer started. That's a very important thing that John said. It is inspired by God for him to say that. But Jesus is going to offer grace. He's going to offer redemption. He's going to offer love to set the captives free, to relinquish the poor from oppression, all that kind of stuff. It is not until Israel rejects Jesus that that last part can then be added in the vengeance of God. Second, the language of Isaiah 58, 6, to send forth the oppressed and release has been added to the end of the quotation in order to draw attention to the word release. So he takes the passage from Isaiah 58 and he adds that to the end. Instead of ending with vengeance, he ends with the poor and the captives being released. So this is the idea that's being communicated here is deliverance. So there are three major structural features that are emphasized in this reading. First, the first three lines end with the pronoun me in order to emphasize the Holy Spirit's anointing of Jesus as Yahweh's agent to proclaim the good news. He is going to end each line with me. The Spirit of Yahweh is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor and has sent me. The emphasis here is on himself. Now this is important because even though the original understanding of Isaiah and the servant passages is that it was the messianic figure that God was going to send to deliver the people, the Jews have retranslated, or not retranslated, reinterpreted this passage to apply to them. As they became oppressed over and over again by the Greeks and the Romans, they had a hard time accepting the fact of that double-sided coin of the Messiah, the Messiah that would suffer and die and take their sins, as well as would conquer the enemy and set up his kingdom forever. So they begin to reinterpret the sign, the sight of the coin of the suffering servant as them. They're the suffering servants under Greece and Rome, and the Messiah is the king that conquers and destroys the enemy. They are often seeing themselves as a suffering servant. Therefore, Jesus is emphasizing the me part. I am the Messiah, and I am the one who will suffer. I am the servant of God, and I will release people. I will set them free. So this is the first structural emphasis here. The second is the three following phrases follow out of the proclaiming the good news to the poor. So the poor becomes emphasized. This is a main emphasis. And the third is the idea of release is repeated twice. So he starts with, the, God has chosen me. The Spirit is on me. I will preach the good news. Then this leads into the poor. This is provided for the poor. 
And then he ends with two releases, this idea of release. So these are the three major structural emphasis of this passage. The poor. How do we understand the poor? The poor are not just financially poor, according to Luke. All throughout the First Testament, the poor is more than just finances. And especially in the Gospels, and especially in Luke, the poor is more than just financial poor. The poor are those who are economically and spiritually poor. The idea here is the Greco-Roman world was once... In the Greco-Roman world, one's status in the community was not so much based on economic wealth, but rather on a whole number of factors. So your status wasn't based on whether you're wealthy or poor. Your status was based on your education, your gender, your family, your religious purity, vocation, economics. Just like us. In America, it's not just whether you're poor or wealthy. It's also what education do you have and and what family background do you come from? And what neighborhood did you grow up in? And, and, and all these other different factors. And what job do you have now? And so being poor and being wealthy, we often think of that as money. But if we really thought about it, we realize that it's a whole gambit of things put together. And that's what determines your status. And whether you're worthy of actually being listened to or anybody coming into your presence and giving you any kind of attention. So the poor are those who would have been excluded from the more normal stations of status or socially privileged communities. So the poor is basically anyone who does not fit into the culture. Anybody who's rejected. Anybody who has said, no, you cannot have this job because you're not the right gender or you didn't come from the right neighborhood or you don't have the right education. Anyone who's being picked on in their school or neighborhood because they don't wear the right clothes. They, 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 they don't, don't act in the right way. Their family is, their parents are weird or dysfunctional or they're weird or dysfunctional in some kind of way and that's not right. It, it's just anything. And so anybody that you see that is not getting the opportunities that they should because of something about them or their family or their neighborhood or anybody who's being picked on or rejected for any kind of reason. There are wealthy people who get picked on and rejected because they're just not normal according to the normal status of things or their family is messed up in some kind of a way, or they they wealthy later in their life, but because they were wealthy later in their life, they didn't get the right education earlier in their life, and therefore they're still always seen as, oh, you, you didn't come from the right place. So that's the poor. The poor is, the, the um, and it can be ethnics, it can be gender, it can be anything. So anybody who's being rejected from the normal status of life, they're the poor. That's what Gospels, that's what Luke specifically means by the poor. And in that sense, the gambit or the, the spectrum is much wider of who that includes. Um, or even just those who have learning disabilities and are looked down upon by other kids as the not-so-intelligent ones. So this is the emphasis here. This is who he's come for. Everybody that has arrived and has a station and has rejected anybody else for not fitting into that, that's exactly who Jesus come for. That's who he's come for. Jesus refuses to accept the normal social boundaries of the community. This is what Christ is about. He's going to flip the tables. The blind are not just the physically blind. The word is used as a metaphor for the spiritually blind as well. And we see this multiple places through Luke. So the blind can be 
pretty much anyone who does not see their need for God. Anybody who's self-reliant. Anybody who does not see themselves in any kind of a need whatsoever. Anybody who's like, I can do it. I pulled myself up and I will keep doing it. And anybody who does not see their need for God. The God. That's the blind. The word release carries the idea of forgiveness. So we're not just talking about releasing a captive physically, although that's implied, but it, requ- it implies the idea of forgiveness, the release from sins. So this word release can mean that you're released from physical oppression under the physical weight of an empire or a boss or an oppressor of some kind. It can also have, carry the idea of an actual physical release from prison or your shackles. It can re- refer to the, the release for, from, from a financial debt that is so overwhelming that you can't handle it and it's just crippling your life. But ultimately at the foundation of it is the release from sin, forgiveness of sins. Because without that foundational release, all the other releases are merely just circumstantial and temporary and physical. And so this is the release that leads to all other releases. And this is the allusion to the year of Jubilee. So when we were in the Leviticus study, we talked about there were major Sabbaths. So you had the weekly Sabbath, they came every Saturday. Then you had the yearly Sabbath, that came every seventh year. And then you had the year of Jubilee, which came every 50th year. And the year of Jubilee is where all debts are canceled completely. Whatever debt that you owe to any bank or any neighbor or any family member, any kind of stuff would be completely canceled. And you would never have to pay whatever was left on that debt. All slaves were set free. Whatever you were in slavery for, remember slavery was mostly a form of bankruptcy rather than a demonic, oppressive, dehumanizing thing that America did in our past. And so all slaves were set free no matter what. And then all lands returned back to the original owners. So any land that was in your family, but for whatever reason, life was hard or a famine came through and you lost that land or you had to sell the land to make ends meet, that land would return back to you. Because remember, your land in the ancient world is your bank account, it's your grocery store, it's your social status, it's your inheritance, it's your home, it's everything. Where for us, land is just a home and we can get homes pretty easily. And I mean, I know it's harder for some than others, but it's still way easier than anybody else in the world and anybody else throughout human history. This is what the land is. Now, we talked about this. In all the years that Israel was alive, they have never celebrated the year of Jubilee. They never obeyed God, and they never did Jubilee, and they never canceled debts, let the slaves free, and let the lands return back to the original owners. What Jesus is announcing here is, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. This won't lead to an immediate physical slaves being set free and lands returning and debts being physically canceled financially. But what it's going to do is his death on the cross is going to lead to their release from sin. And that release from sin is going to free them from that debt that God has on them for their sin. It's going to allow them to actually receive the Holy Spirit and empower them and give them hope, peace, joy, contentment, and satisfaction in a way that they never had, which will then launch the church, which the church is supposed to then start setting the people free from debts and lands returning back and, and, and slaves being set free. And in a lot of cases throughout human history, the church has. And I know we can point to a lot of cases where the church has failed miserably to do those things on a local level. But on a global level, the church has done that. 
And, and if you really want a good example of the church doing this, read two books. One, Dinesh D'Souza has What's So Great About Christianity. And the second one is Total Truth by Nancy Percy. And it really, Christianity did change the world. The fact that we actually live in a country right now where dictators are held in check by balances of separation of powers, um, three branches, and um, the limitations of terms, and, um, and the right to bear arms, and all that kind of stuff is a Christian idea. The, the fact that a slavery was even abolished and the people who fought slavery as Christians. The women's feminist movement was started by Christians reading the First Testament. The, the anti-child slavery laws were, were started by Christians. The idea that everybody in this room thinks that pedophilia is wrong is because of Christians and not because of the world. Everybody was okay with that when Jesus came along, except for the Jews and except for Christians. The fact that we think rape is wrong and abortion is wrong and all these things is a Christian thing that changed the world. And as America becomes less and less Christian, the Supreme Court is legalizing abortion. They're seriously thinking about pedophilia now. And all these kinds of things are starting to flood back in again. And so this is what Jesus is saying. And then ultimately in his second coming, this will literally completely fully be done. An absolute year of jubilee. And so it begins with the first coming, and then it's finalized in the second coming, and that's the idea that is being communicated here, that God is bringing a new age, and not in a twisted, dysfunctional meditation new age of Hinduism America, but a new age where you don't achieve... See, Hinduism's idea of new age movement from the 70s is you achieve enlightenment through peace and contentment and escape the material realm and don't have to deal with any of this stuff. God's idea of the new age is you roll up your sleeves, you get in the muck of life, and you step into people's lives and you help them. You help release them. And you help change their lives. And you help bring them into a right, intimate, fulfilling, satisfying relationship with God in a way that they never will have with anybody else or any other God. And so then when Christ comes back to the earth and makes all things new, we are spiritually, physically whole and right with God and right with each other and not just absorbed into the universe into nothingness. That's the difference between Hinduism and God's new age. And this is what Jesus is going to begin to usher in. This is the idea. And so he has come through the power of the Spirit and God's approval to the poor, anybody who's socially outcasted, anybody who has been rejected because they don't have the right whatever, anybody who has been oppressed in any kind of way, he has come for them to release them, to release them for the things that hold them down. And even though there may not be an immediate physical release necessarily, there will be a spiritual release which will give them a peace, a hope, a contentment, a satisfaction that passes all understanding despite their physical circumstances. And if you want to see this, go to third world countries where they have nothing and they're absolutely oppressed and yet they have Christ and there's this sense of great hope. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying they're never sad, that they never battle depression, that they never get angry, that they never feel like giving up and they never lose hope. I'm not saying that. But in the end... They're rooted in Christ, and he gives them the ability to get through that stuff and to deal with that because they're not alone. They're not alone. 
And I know there are many Christians who experience that in this life too, but it seems you have to seek those individuals out in an affluential America. Where in a poor third world country, you seems to be a whole entire community is like that. So that seems to be the big difference. It's not that they have it and we don't. It just seems to be more community that they have it. And it's more individualistically that we have it here. So this is what he preaches. So verse 20. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he began to tell them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled, even as you heard it being read. Now basically what he's saying is, I am it. Now one of the reasons they probably were fixated on him was, that's not the passage I memorized growing up. (laughs) He's changed a few things and emphasized a few things that are not there. So they're really like on the edge of their seat waiting for his explanation. And his explanation simply is, I am. It's been fulfilled today. This thing that you've been waiting for thousands of years, you are looking at it right now. It has been fulfilled. 